Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast with me, Steve Anglesey, the editor of the New European. This week, as NHS workers prepare to go back out on strike, we're joined by a GP who will lay bare the problems at the heart of our health service. Why have things gone so badly wrong? How can we fix them? And the big one, is it still possible to have a high-functioning national health service that is free to all at the point of need? And if you enjoyed Boris Johnson's comeback, you're going to love the one being planned by the woman who replaced him in number 10 for, oh, it's about five minutes, wasn't it? Yes, Liz Truss is back. She's mad as hell. No change there. Uh, and she's not going to take it anymore. She is planning a return in order to, and I quote, drag Britain out of economic stagnation. That'll be the same economic stagnation Liz Truss helped drag us further into with a disastrous Kamikaze budget. I'll be discussing Trust 2.0 with Eleanor Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. But first, another excellent print edition of The New European is available now. That's issue 327 with Rishi Sunak on the front cover as a middle finger. Inside, from Brussels, Dave Keating asks, would the EU even want us back? Alistair Campbell delivers a final verdict on Nadim Zahawi and Paola Totaro takes us inside a holy war at the Vatican. Plus, there is unrivaled coverage of European arts and culture in our Europhile section. If that sounds good to you, then why not subscribe to The New European with this great offer? Podcast listeners can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just £2 a week, just by going to theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Print and digital for £2 a week gets you unlimited digital access. Plus, our award-winning newspaper is delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer, please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. So Ellie and Matt will join us to discuss Liz Truss and who we're putting in the Hall of Shame. But first, a couple of weeks back, the New European published a powerful cover story from an anonymous GP at the sharp end of the crisis in our NHS. We're delighted that they are joining us this week. To protect the confidentiality of the GP and their patients, they are being voiced by the New Europeans' Clark Nickenheiler. 
okay so i mean we are we're not using your name or your real voice for reasons of anonymity to help set the scene for the listeners then can you tell us about who you are and and what you do what stage you're at in your career i work as a gp partner in a small semi-rural gp practice we practice out of the countryside which is lovely i work part-time there and the rest of the time i am busy doing a phd a lot of my phd revolves around the interactions and relationships between doctors and patients how they've changed over the years and what they look like today. I initially trained as a surgeon and then did a master's overseas in the States. And I'm now in my fourth year after qualifying as a GP. Great. Uh, well, the relationship between uh, patients and, and the NHS is obviously something that we'll come back to and has changed radically. Um, we had an enormous reaction to your, your piece a, a few weeks ago and since nurses and ambulance drivers are about to go out and strike again and we've got this new government plan to recover urgent and emergency care services I think it's billed as that was released a couple of days ago so we wanted to revisit the article for those people who haven't read it yet it's up on our homepage right now what were the the feelings that drove you to to write it well I think it was a day of immense frustration where the care and the relationships we have for our patients and with our patients was so evident, yet there were so many challenges within the healthcare system and also our wider security systems and social care systems that they were making all the efforts we did to support people quite difficult. A lot of the people I was seeing the day I wrote the article were really struggling with things that were beyond my control to do anything about. And I was really just watching the impact on individual lives and seeing the sort of distress that failing systems can impact and can exert on people. Yes, I mean, the the, the case studies are, are, you know, immensely powerful and they are uh, harrowing. Uh, there's, there's some, obviously, there's some uplifting uh, things in there uh, as well. I mean, so let's get into some of what you, you are facing on a day-to-day basis then. Uh, I know there's no typical day for 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 a GP, but but could you talk about things that you might do in a in a yeah. day? The, the kind of hours that you work, the numbers of people that you would expect to see, and and some of the typical things that you might deal with. Today, for example, I am teaching medical students at the same time as running a clinic. So I've seen twenty patients this morning with the students. What's wonderful about having the students with me is that it reminds me how there is so much positivity out there and so much hope and so much potential for our healthcare system. This morning, we've seen an older patient with bowel cancer who's been through the stress and the pressure that any cancer diagnosis and subsequent treatment exerts on him and his family. We've talked about the psychological problems he's faced, and he mentioned how incredibly supportive his cancer team has been and how much he valued the continuity he's had with one of our trainee doctors, and just how much that has supported him through some really, really rocky times. And we've also seen various younger people with mental health issues, where we've talked about the impact of work and the pressure of life that they're facing. We've also talked about some of the softer problems that often present for patients as health issues. For me, one of my great frustrations is that it's hard for policymakers to measure the softer side of general practice and what we do for people. For example, a lady I saw this morning is suffering from reflux, which obviously many people suffer from, 
But when we unpicked it, we discovered that there were many issues in her personal life. She was struggling for motivation. She's coming close to the menopause. And there is a lot of issues around that, which aren't at all directly related to her indigestion, but are probably manifesting in some of those symptoms. While I'm fully supportive of any sort of plan that's designed to add resources to the NHS, I think purely focusing on A&E, which inevitably happens when we've seen the pressures we've been under this winter, actually overlooks a lot of the benefits we offer to patients and some of the chronic disease management that we do. We've seen a couple of patients with asthma this morning, for example, where we've been trying to empower them to keep their diseases as under control as possible and out of hospitals. There are many softer, valuable things that get overlooked while stocking up on more ambulances. You asked about what a typical day looks like for me. Well, normally I'd see about 20 to 30 patients, a mixture of face-to-face and phone calls. Some things I do exclusively via text messages or email, depending on how well I know the patient. I often have about an hour of admin relating to the morning and then another relating to the afternoon. We sign prescription requests, deal with hospital letters and deal with blood test results coming in. I normally work from about 7.30 in the morning to 7.30 at night. I typically don't have a lunch break. I might do a few visits, depending on whether I'm able to squeeze them in. I mean, that, that's that's an incredible workload, I, I think. And and I mean, does that? How does that match up with with what you expected when you when you were studying medicine? Is is it is it radically different, or did you know that it was going to be something like this? I'm lucky because I grew up with a mother who was a GP and always saw her work very hard. And I didn't pick general practice because it was an easy option. And to be fair, I don't think many of my colleagues did either. There's an ongoing joke about all GPs being on the golf course and we all choose it for the lifestyle. And I really don't think many of us are that naive. I think what's become harder and harder and what is different than what I had envisioned when I was in medical school is the demand on the system and the pressure that's there that makes it much harder for us to practice in the way we want to. For example, in our practice, we're very keen to promote continuity and ongoing relationships with our patients to try and give them the most autonomy as possible over their appointments and whether they'd like to come in or want a telephone call. I think that when we thought about it in medical school, we envisioned ourselves working in a way that would form those ideal relationships with our patients. But because of the pressure we are under currently, it can be difficult. Although I still try to practice in that way. The ongoing effort to try and make that happen and the strains when it isn't possible are the difficulties that I never envisioned. And many junior doctors never envisioned as well. Yes. And and I mean, it's I mean, it's it's striking that when you see health professionals of all kinds uh, on television at the moment, you know, I've been really struck recently uh, by watching those people and seeing how many people are using phrases I mean it's not not, it's beyond moral injury that you know there's a lot of phrases about being on the edge being you know being on the brink not not talking about either themselves or some of their colleagues or the places that they work or the or the the system as a whole I mean what 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 other reactions do, does that does that bring does that I, I presume I'm presuming it it harms 
retention i'm presuming it, it increases the capacity for for error i think it's all those things i think that i'm far luckier than many of my hospital colleagues in that as a partner i have slightly more say over the systems and so to an extent we can adapt in general practice we are contracted to provide nhs services but as a partnership we have a little more flexibility in how we do that as a group of GPs who've come together to form a partnership. So that gives me a little more flexibility to try and improve the situation for my colleagues and also the staff who we employ. I think that becomes another pressure that often we are trying to keep a lot of that burden away from younger doctors and trainee doctors and, and also our reception teams who take the brunt of our complaints. I totally understand how frustrated and desperate people are becoming and that takes a toll on our staff. One of our main issues has been staff retention within our practice, particularly admin, because they're the people who are really on the front line. And I have so much respect for what they do and how patient they are. Certainly, staff retention is a huge issue. And there's a lot of talk about recruiting new GPs and students from medical school. But it's kind of like trying to fill up a bucket with holes in it. You're not getting anywhere unless you try and fill up those holes doesn't matter how many new doctors you recruit and actually you're losing years of experience and other skills. For example, experienced doctors do an awful lot of management, policy development and health, wider healthcare organization management. And if you lose a lot of those senior members of staff, you lose all that expertise. Not that we shouldn't be hiring new people, but our main issue is retention. And one of the main issues within that field is pensions. You know, as you get older and have more experience, you end up getting pushed into higher and higher tax brackets, which results in you paying to go to work, which is an interesting position to be in, for lack of a better word. You pointed out before that there is just an incredible workload at the moment, and some of the incentives and initiatives that are there to try and improve our workload don't really achieve that. In general practice, for example, I'm thinking about a lot of the new roles that have been instigated. We have a lot of new paramedics in primary care and nurse practitioners. Now, they're obviously incredibly skilled and I wouldn't want to do without them in my team. But do they take the work off of me? In some ways, yes. But obviously, we have to supervise them and coordinate and make sure they're being used appropriately. So they end up adding a lot of extra workplace burdens, especially as we are the ones responsible often for training them. Yes, I mean... Uh, Richie Sunak was at great pains earlier, uh, well, last year now, wasn't it? Or, or maybe it was. He was at, Richie Sunak was at great pains uh, earlier to to stress that. Well, you didn't want to call it a crisis in the NHS. Does it does it feel like a crisis? Is it an ongoing crisis, or is it just an incredibly hard and, and stressful place to, to work? I would like to stress that I still love my job, and there are wonderful things that happen in the healthcare system that really shouldn't be overlooked. Like, for example, I mentioned before how the patient with the cancer treatment was overwhelmed by how supportive his experience had been. I, I think there are truly examples of excellent care, and to me, that's what the NHS can and should deliver in these areas. But I think increasingly we are seeing stories about how care is falling short of what we feel like it could be. So instead of reaching those heights, I've also had patients complaining about how they have appointments booked for 12 months away 
And I can really feel in that regard how they feel failed by the system. I think there is definitely a workforce crisis. And while there are many examples of excellent care, I do see a rise in instances of poor care or care where people feel let down. I think expectations do change across generations, but I don't think that accounts for many of the people I've seen who express their feelings of being let down by the system in a lot of cases. Yes, I, I mean, I mean, we can talk. We can talk about the the emergency uh, blueprint that, that, that the government have released. Obviously, it's not about primary care, which is possibly one of the the, the biggest flaws with it. I think they're planning on releasing the general practice primary care plan in a couple of weeks. So maybe why GPs were only mentioned five times in the new acute and emergency plan. But equally, I think a part of any good acute and emergency plan would be to prevent acute and emergency situations. And I'm not sure that really came through by their plan. Yes. I mean, the, I, I guess the, the, the sort of the, the, the biggest question, the, the, the big question is, is, is whether it is possible with all the societal changes that have happened over the last what 80 years is it is it is it possible i mean you 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 work you see this every day is it possible to have a high functioning health service that is free to all at the point of need as you know as as envisaged i think it's a very good question and a debate that needs to be had in a less emotive context which i'm not really sure how to achieve but i think there does need to be a debate about what the aims of the NHS are and how it will deliver those aims while still being free at the point of use. I know that a lot of people talk about insurance-based systems being able to resolve some of those issues, but really I think every healthcare system has its pros and cons and you really need a transparent discussion about what those would be in each different model. And because the NHS is such a political football at the moment, that discussion just can't happen. We are an aging population in England currently, and our medicine is becoming increasingly complex and expensive. Therefore, there does need to be some discussion about what should be available as a free system and what might be considered extra, either via insurance or some form of private holder or private insurance system. I worked in the States and have many colleagues there who do live in insurance-based systems, and none of them would really be able to offer an easy solution to our problems. My worry is that the people who rely on the NHS for long-term chronic care would potentially be the first people to lose out under such a system. I would be low to introduce a system like that in a straightforward sense, but equally, I'm not sure that the NHS can continue operating under its current model. Yes, I mean it's 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 incredibly hard to to see uh, how that would uh, how that would happen and how that would change. I, I mean, you talked about other systems that you worked in and, and observed. Is there is there anyone that is is there a particular country or a particular model that you think is is doing it better than than we are doing it at the moment? I think many of them are struggling, honestly. I was talking to a colleague of mine in France a few days ago, and she was describing very similar situations relating to workforce and stress, currently struggling with providing the level of care that they would wish to provide under their system. I think some of the insurance-based systems do work well, but they're still very expensive. And when you look at the efficiency that the NHS does offer, we do remarkably well, and we do have reliable outcomes. 
obviously, if you want to optimize your outcomes, you will inevitably have to pay more. And there isn't really any way around that. No, I mean, the, the, a lot of this is, is going to come down to, to, to money in the end, isn't it? And, um, and, and, and you, you know, I mean, you, you, you have a government and it's, and I guess it's, and I guess it's true, isn't it? Who will, will tell you that they are spending more on X and Y than has ever been spent before. And um, so I, I mean, just looking at this, the, the, the plan to recover urgent and emergency care services I mean that 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 proposes that you, you talked about bed capacity by 5,000 it says it wants to grow the workforce it says it wants to speed up the discharge of patients from hospital and grow community care and, and virtual beds use of virtual beds yeah. I mean these are all sort of laudable aims aren't they it, would would they is that is that even sort of touching the sides of the the, the problem though and, and what really would make a difference I guess money I guess investment right there are many things that could be achieved realistically under our current system for relatively little money that would make a difference for example people talk a lot about a joined up IT system across the service and other things that aren't exactly rocket science that could make our working lives much easier and could be achieved with little money. I think the biggest elephant in the room has always been the social care system. And until there is some serious attempt to bolster that, I have no idea how they're going to achieve their plans. There just aren't staff available for all these extra things they plan to offer, unless they're just trying to stretch existing staff more thinly. I think one of the biggest things we could do to support the healthcare system would be to pour money into the social care system. Not in however many thousands of new ambulances we're going to have. That just seems like a ridiculous place to put our funding. The problem with social care, though, for them is that you have to continuously pay your social care staff, whereas with an ambulance, that's just a one-off payment. That looks like you're really doing something. Therein lies one of my biggest frustrations with how the government is handling things currently. It really feels like they want to pretend that they're really supporting us, but they're not really addressing the things that really make a difference. Yes. And I mean, of course, pay, we, we've touched on it as an issue of this month. Obviously, we're going to see more NHS strike action. When you see Rishi Sunak, as he did last week, explaining that it would be the easiest thing for him to do to give NHS workers a, 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 large, a larger pay rise, but he won't do it because it would create inflation. I mean, what, what, yeah. what does that conjure up for you? That's an argument that's been debunked multiple times, isn't it? When salaries in the private sector are as high as they are, it's not by giving the public sector a real-term pay rise that you're going to raise inflation. Really, it's going to lead to growth because they have to spend that money within the local economy if they need it to survive. So actually, that money isn't going to be invested or drive inflation. Really, I just find this kind of notion frustrating. I think many professions have seen an attrition in their real-term wages, and I know that doctors certainly have. There's a massive assumption about doctors earning high wages. Junior doctors certainly aren't, and consultants have taken a significant real-terms cut over the last 12 years. I think the trouble is that when you could be earning more working in the private field and doing something relatively simple like working in a supermarket, not to undermine it, but why would you put up with the pressures that people are experiencing? It isn't that people don't want to care for patients. Of course they do. But equally, they have bills to pay. And I don't know how you'll keep people in the system unless they meet those demands that we all have to. 
That's why you're seeing so many junior doctors flying out to Australia and New Zealand. Their working conditions are better and they respect the lives of doctors a lot more than the NHS through having things like more effective rota systems and floating doctors who can fill in for shifts when they're short. But also one of the biggest drivers to go overseas is the pay. And while it is a global workforce, I don't know how you'll keep people in a system that so heavily undervalues them. Yes, that is uh, it's a, a you know, terrible state of affairs. Um, what's the future for, for you then? I, I mean, I don't think I've, I've met a, a single NHS worker in a private situation <laughs> rather than when I've been in hospital or at my GPs who hasn't talked about leaving straight yeah. straight away mm-hmm. are you are you a, a lifer in this do you think or will you be doing it in 10 years I think we're all going to have to wait and see what happens within the next 10 years to be honest I'd love to be a GP still in 10 years time and in the NHS in 10 years time I have a lovely team of colleagues and I hugely value my patients and the interactions I have with them. I think it depends on what happens to the system. I'm lucky. I have alternative options available to me and I I think many of my colleagues do as well. I don't think we stick it out for any other reason other than we love our job and love helping people whenever we can. But sometimes I feel like love can't outweigh the growing pressures put on us by the government. So I think we'll just have to wait and see where we end up. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. That's been absolutely fascinating. And and I mean, thanks for thanks for everything that you do. And thanks for the, the, the piece, which is incredible. I hope we can do some more soon. Uh, powerful stuff for our anonymous GP there. And now we turn to someone who was briefly in charge of the NHS and everything else in Britain for a disastrous few weeks. It all seems like a bit of a weird cheese nightmare now but Liz Truss really was the Prime Minister uh, and Liz Truss really does think that she uh, can come back and has have something interesting to um, add to the political discussion. Um, to discuss the return of Liz Truss, I can't, I can't believe I'm using that phrase, mm-hmm. I'm joined by the New Europeans Eleanor Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. Um, Ellie, I mean, it's we're not joking, are we? She actually is planning a, a comeback. No, sadly, this is not, uh, as you say, not a joke. I read a headline this morning, uh, which was, is Liz Truss planning a comeback with the help of Republicans? And I think as I read that, a little bit of my soul just sort of slowly died inside. Um, but yeah, so essentially Liz Truss has gone stateside. She's found America, much to our surprise. Um, before the winter holidays, there's you know, it's come out that she took to Washington telling apparently a very different tale of her 49 days in office than the ones we all saw unfolding and has sort of used this time as a research trip to basically plot her comeback. Um, Conferring with Republican lawmakers and activists, Truss has said that she remained determined to awaken Britain from its economic stagnation, a word we've all missed, uh, and didn't trust Rishi Sunak to do the job at the height of irony. Um, From what I've read, it seems like she believed her policies needed to borrow a few Republican ideas, apparently, and that it was actually our fault, you know, she only had 49 days in office and that Britain would be more receptive if it just had a few tweaks. That was the only issue. Yeah. Uh, and apparently she's and she's found it. It was the Republican Study Committee, um, which is an influential body within the House of Representatives that serves as a sort of ideological anchor for the for the GOP for government shrinking policies. Um, So when she was over there, she met with Representative Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, which is the group's chair. Um, And essentially, it's been said that she wanted to create a similar group in Westminster 
And it's now been reported by Politico that a group of MPs have essentially toasted the creation of such a group uh, entitled the Conservative Growth Group, which I'm sure is great news to all. Um, and on this trip, we took Jake Berry, the former Conservative Party chairman, and Brandon Lewis, the former minister, uh, and together they visited Capitol Hill and adv advocacy groups like Americans for Tax Reform. Um, on this trip, Berry also said that what the country really needs what his country really needs now is a Marshall Plan for conservatism. I'm not entirely sure how many people are behind him on that. Um, so yeah, all in all, a really festive trip. I'm sure we all wish we were we were on. So no, we're not joking, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this isn't a bit of a joke. Yes, I mean, instead of Republicans, probably publicans would have been more mm. useful as trust to meet with because she's obviously failed to um, convince anybody that she could organise a piss up in a brewery. Um, how is Rishi Sunak going to react to all of this? Obviously, it's being portrayed as a threat to Rishi Sunak and all of this. But, is, I mean, is this trust just so discredited that he'll be able to brush it off or, or, or it might even help him out, I guess? Yeah, so it's really quite remarkable because we've gone from, you know, talking about the comeback of Boris Johnson last week and how that could pose a problem for Rishi Sunak. And fast forward six or seven days and we're talking about the return of Liz Trust this week. Um so it seems that left and right, he's sort of batting off his predecessors and the ghosts of ghosts of Westminster's past. I don't think it's a particularly personal problem for Sunak, i.e. I don't think she poses a challenge. Um, I mean, let's not forget that she was beaten by lettuce to her time in office. So do we honestly see a scenario where she comes back? At least I really hope and I don't want to belong to a scenario where she comes back. I also don't think it's really going to get much airtime from him when we consider how long it took to get any sort of valid um in quotation marks, response on Nadim Zaharway, which is obviously a much bigger issue to play with. Um, but I also do think that this talk of comebacks, comebacks does show a much more profound problem for, for Sunak in the Tory party. You know, last week we discussed Nadim Zaharway in his tax inquiry. This week we've got Rab and bullying claims coming back into the, into the limelight. Sunak promised and pledged to rule with integrity and trust. And the fact that those around him are falling and failing to provide any sort of examples of this is really damaging. And then when you pair that with figures from the past saying, you know, oh, I marked it up, let me try again, let me have another go, doesn't really give a sign of a government or, in fact, a party in control of their future, let alone what's going on, you know, in contemporary politics, what's going on right now. So I don't think Liz Truss in of herself is a threat, I really hope. Um, but the fact that we keep talking about potential comebacks, who could swoop in and, you know, unseat the prime minister is really damaging to him. Um, the fact that, you know, it's just very clear from any sort of rhetoric that we're continuously looking as to what's next. It doesn't really pose well for Sunak. No, I mean, I suppose the thing that you would say about Truss and to a larger extent Boris Johnson is, you know, he's got rid of Gavin Williamson. I mean, Gavin Williamson scared people, but he didn't really have any mm. big mates. You know, there wasn't going to be a, a backlash against Gavin Williamson having to go. Similarly, Nadim Zahawi is not, you know, he doesn't carry an awful lot of the Conservative Party with him. And I don't think Dominic Raab uh, does either when he inevitably mm. uh, has to go. But there are... Uh, for reasons of insanity, there are quite a lot of people in the Conservative Party who still think that Liz Truss was hard done by and that Boris Johnson was hard done by. And it might be, it might end up being more of a problem for, for Rishi Sunak than uh, that was than, than, than certainly Williamson and, and Nadim Zahawi mm. have been. Um Matt Withers, are you are you jumping aboard Liz Truss's three-wheeled uh, bandwagon? <laughs> no. 
No, I'm not jumping aboard. Uh, although I, I did find so much to love about this story, not least um, her insiders briefing the uh, briefing the eye that she'd taken a quotes breather after more than ten years in ministerial office, as if she'd planned it like a gap year rather than say you know being forced out after 44 days of being the most incompetent prime minister in British political history. Um, I believe she's also penning a lengthy opinion piece for a Sunday newspaper this weekend. Uh, So that's something to look forward to. I assume that that's the Sunday Telegraph, whose uh, swivel-eyed editor, Alistair Heath, continues to keep the Trussite flame glowing brightly, like those uh, aristocratic German coup plotters who still insist the post-First World War German Republic's illegitimate. Um, (laughs) Do I feel sorry for it? No. <laughs> She's like something from the Darwin Awards. You know, those um, honours for individuals who supposedly contribute to human evolution by selecting themselves out of the gene pool. Um, I mean, I, I get the point. that There are people, uh, like, you, like you say, Steve, who believe she was hard done by, but the only person to blame for Liz Truss's situation is Liz Truss. You know, she came to power from the votes of, what, 81,326 Conservative Party members, the sort of people who spend their weekends buying slacks from the back pages of the Daily Express, took it as a mandate for a radical free market Tufton Street slash and burn government, appointed a cabinet of people based solely on their blind fealty to her, and then just stared blankly, literally stared blankly, as every political instinct she'd ever had was tested to destruction. And now she still appears to think she was right. Um, I, do, I don't know. I, I I think Liz Truss's regime, I, I was out of the country for two weeks of her reign, which was exactly 28% of it. Um, she feels like the kind of political equivalent of Paul McGann's Doctor Who. Yeah. In 25 years' time, Prime Minister fans will gather for conventions at London's Excel Centre, debating uh-huh. whether Liz Truss can truly be considered canon or not. It, it is going to feel, I, I think... In, well, it feels weird now, but years from now, because she's going to be around for a long time. She's only in her late 40s, isn't she? We're going to see Remembrance Day laying a wreath every single year for potentially up to the next four decades, having to explain to younger people who this woman is. It's very odd. <laughs> it really is odd. Um, and, of course, she's not the only um, failed, uh, disgraced Conservative Prime Minister uh, to have been in uh, the states this week because Boris Johnson has been there as well. Um, did you have you followed his uh, his progress through the United States? Yeah, a little bit. He uh, well, he's obviously been lobbying for further military assistance to Ukraine and absolutely not seeking to keep himself uh, in the public eye as much as possible ahead of a potential leadership challenge to Rishi Sunak. Um, he's been speaking to the Atlantic Council and uh, appearing on Fox News, which. Um, but let's give a, a rare, a very rare bit of small credit here. That is no bad thing, actually, um, talking to them about the need to um, continue support for Ukraine, because both the Atlantic Council and certainly a lot of prominent voices on Fox News are edging towards a kind of fringier conspiracy theory wing over over Ukraine. And if he if he can go on as a kind of counterpoint to the Tucker Carlson's of this world, then um let's give him the briefest of ticks on that but as i said before he, he clearly doesn't think he's done in downing street um he's keeping himself on the front pages of friendly newspapers he's opened himself to intense scrutiny this friday night by giving an interview to new talk tv hire nadine dorries uh, in what i suspect will be the uh, frost nixon de nos jours 
Um, I, I think he's on the comeback train in a different way to Truss. Although Truss is quite mm. clearly start raving bonkers, I think even she has the glimmer of self-awareness that she isn't going to get a second stint in Downing Street. I suspect she knows her time at the absolute top of frontline politics is over and she's going to become a sort of Ian Duncan Smith figure, a voice for the right of the party who'll speak out on whatever she sees as deviation from the righteous path. I don't know, it's possible a future Prime Minister might give us some kind of old chair of the party. Um, but as I think I said last week, I'm increasingly the view that um, by December the 31st, 2023, Boris Johnson will be serving his second term as leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. And I wish it weren't so. Well, yes, I mean, it's a chilling thought. Uh, some of our magnificent listeners have been offering their thoughts on Liz Truss's comeback. We asked uh, them what a Liz Truss comeback album or tour might be called. Ellie, you've got some suggestions, haven't you? I do, yeah. So Ian G says Return of the CAC. Uh, David Paris says The Second Dumbing. Uh, Crafty Bugger, I suspect not his real name, says The Brass Neck Tour. And last but not least, Henry War says Liz and Let Die. And Matt, you've got a few as well. Yeah, Jan Godfrey says Return of the Killer Lettuce. Uh, Mandy says Trust in Me. A lot of S's in there. Vincent Paver says How to Lose an Economy in 45 Days, Part 2. And Richard Chappell, um, referring to a very fine live album by Finn Lizzie, says Fit Lizzie, Unalive and Dangerous. Now, from a shameful ex-PM uh, to the Hall of Shame, which is our repository for... Um, pointless politicos and pundits. Uh, Ellie and Matt will get to your choices in a moment. But first, my first pick every week is obviously always Anne Widdicombe, former Tory minister, former Brexit party MEP, still writing the world's worst newspaper column in the world's worst newspaper, which is the Daily Express. Uh, this week, Anne Widdicombe writes several things. She writes that Brexit should be steaming ahead by now. She's steaming ahead, she said. I mean, it's actually just steaming. Um, then she a great piece about her fax machine uh, and worried that she never uses a fax machine nowadays. Uh, and she wonders whether things like checkbooks and, and landlines will also go out of service. Uh, a, a bit of news for you there. Man. Uh, yes, they have. Uh, she also writes once again that we should all ignore Prince Harry. And obviously she does that by uh, once again writing 600 words about Prince Harry, um, which is top ignoring. But I think this speaks for itself because Anne Widdicombe writes, it is worth pointing out that in the last 55 years, the UK has seen just under 10 million babies aborted. No wonder we cannot grow our own workforce of doctors, nurses, teachers and entrepreneurs. And I think, I mean, no comment necessary apart from to say that that is why it's that kind of stuff uh, that makes me uh, put Anne Widdicombe in the Hall of Shame every week. Eleanor Longman Rood, who are your choices this week? Yeah, that really is quite... Um, I hadn't read that. That's really quite... Yes, it's quite revolting, ex- even for Anne Widdicombe. Mm, that's, as ever, putting two and two together and making 358 or, you know, whatever. No logic to that. And it's, as you say, really not a nice comment at all. No. Um, but as for my candidates, so first up for me in the Hall of Shame this week is Matt Hancock. He's obviously been in here before and we've all missed him, so it's only fair to bring him on back. Uh, so this week, the former Health Secretary was on Good Morning Britain to break his silence over the 320,000 uh, fee he received for taking part in I'm a Celebrity. Side note, and this is really not the point, 
But someone commented on Twitter in response to the sort of B-roll shown of Hancock walking ever so slightly creepily into the studio that he looks like he's off to kill Sarah Connor, forever ruining the Terminator <laughs> films for me because it, you know, I'll be back really isn't the same in Hancock's voice. So thank you very much for that. Um, but anyway, once he made it into the studio and his segment began, he insisted that, you know, the money wasn't the primary reason that he did the show. And it was for other reasons, you know, talking about dyslexia and trying to make politicians seem human and the same sort of spiel. Uh, it later transpired during the exchange that he only gave a tiny fraction of this away to charity. Um, and when, you know, when pushed on it, he appeared to only have one answer. And that was that they were very good charities, but wouldn't really extend beyond that. Uh, he was also questioned on his rule breaking when Britain was under stage two of COVID restrictions. His excuses ranged from that he didn't break the rules as they were only guidelines. Uh, he didn't have all the dates in front of him at that time. And perhaps worst of all, I'm only human. Um, it's not quite the sea was closed, but perhaps we'll hear more from Rav as the days continue. And also on the note of being only human, I once again refer you to the clip of him walking in the corridors through to the studio, which poses a very different picture. Um, and also joining him in the Hall of Shame is Suella Braverman. This week on Twitter, the Home Office posted a video about the public order bill. And in this video, the Home Secretary said, and I quote, uh, that these selfish protesters take up thousands and thousands of hours of police resources. Now, I haven't been able to quantify this in terms of hours, but when the Met said that party, the Partygate investigation cost 467, uh, sorry, over 460,000, uh, which was broken down in terms of staff costs and also staff overtime. When considering who's wasting police resources, Suella, there may be other places that you might want to look first. And that is why Suella Braveman is in the Hall of Shame once again. And uh, good two good choices there. Uh, Matt Withers, who have you got? Uh, first into the Hall of Shame for me this week is Frederick Forsyth, writer, novelist and Daily Express columnist, who this week set out what's needed to stabilise British politics another Conservative leadership election. <laughs> Just as Rishi Sunak celebrates 100 days in office, Forsyth, a Conservative supporter, despairs of his party's slump in the polls and wrote, the problem for the Tory party is not reform or even Keir Starmer and his talentless alternative across the Commons. It is their own bone idleness and timidity, and no public opinion poll is ever going to cure that. The cure lies in themselves. They need yet another change of leader, a huge clear out of the Deadwood and the call to duty of some real go-getters, probably from the private sector with proven records to turn the wallowing ship around and set her on the full sail to recover all that's been lost. But the key is a new leader. And Forsyth's first choice to replace Sunak? Lord David Frost, the former Brexit negotiator who now spends his days fulminating in the Daily Telegraph at the very Brexit deal he himself negotiated. Perfect. And that leads me on to my second entry, Lord David Frost, the aforementioned hapless former whiskey peddler, who this week did nothing to play down the idea he could renounce his peerage, stand as an MP, take his party's leadership and lead them to a stunning victory in 2024. We'll see, he told the news agents, which is apparently another politics podcast, although I've never heard of it. It's a possibility. I'm turning it over, but I haven't kind of decided. That's something I could imagine. 
And just to show what we're missing, to mark the three-year anniversary of Brexit, Frost this week tweeted a list of 12 big accomplishments already, including scrapping the agricultural policy and introducing a scheme which suits UK farmers, which will be news to UK farmers, put in place new free trade agreements, which even the minister who was responsible for some of them admits are useless, and opened up free ports, which only has not actually happened, but was perfectly possible within the EU. So confident was Frost in his list of achievements, he uh, blocked anybody from applying to them. And that's why David Frost is also in the Hall of Shame. Wow. Wow. I was For a minute there, I thought he, he, he'd just gone down to his local news agents and was, uh, and was just... Uh, <laughs> Telling them of his plans. I'll be Prime Minister soon, you know. <laughs> yes. um, and then for, finally from me, uh, a, a few more here. I mean, a, a quote that left me completely gobsmacked this week was the journalist Carol Malone. Uh, on Jeremy Vine's Channel 5 show. And she said, teachers tell us they work through the holidays. If that's the case, why don't teachers go on strike during the holidays? I mean, we can't argue with that logic, can you? Why don't teachers just go go on strike at night while they're in their sleep? Um, and then two amazing moments of clarity uh, to mention, just to wrap up with. One is Boris Johnson, who said in America, once this war is done... Ukraine should begin the process of induction both to NATO and the EU. That's that's Boris Johnson advising that what a good idea it would be for somebody to join the EU. Somebody who's, who's uh, the name of whose country begins with UK. I mean, I can't really uh, get my head around that. And finally, I read this in the Daily Telegraph. This is a, a, an opinion piece written by somebody in the Daily Telegraph. Uh, and they said, if you ask five and a half million small businesses, what has Brexit given you? The small businesses will say nothing. People are getting the upside, the downside without seeing the upside. That is obviously a disaster. And what a damning verdict on Brexit that is. And thank you for joining us in the ranks of the Ramonas. Nigel Farage, who wrote that. Well, that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey, Eleanor Longman-Rood, Matt Withers. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to our anonymous special guest. Uh, thanks to Clara for voicing them. Thanks to our producer, John Dakin. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, you can subscribe and leave lovely uh, reviews and nice ratings uh, wherever your podcast provider allows. Please join our Facebook readers group. You can also follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey. Ellie, where can people follow you? Uh, people can follow me at elongman underscore rude. And Matt Withers? On Twitter at Matt Withers. And a reminder, finally, of our special offer for new subscribers. Go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast and you can join us for just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That is a special offer at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. So until the next time we all meet, it's goodbye from Ellie. Goodbye, Steve. And goodbye, Matt Withers. Farewell. And from me, so long, snowflakes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.